today is April 19th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Bharat Chandrasekharan, and he's an assistant professor of communication sciences and disorders at UT Austin. His lab studies the neural basis of speech perception, neuroplasticity, and learning using multimodal imaging methods. All right, I'm not even going to edit that. That's not worth it. <laughs> Okay, around the room we've got Charlie Wilson. Oh, hello, Bharat. Hi. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Charlie Wilson. Hi. Nicole Witcha. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, Bharat, you make the case that um, studies of human auditory and language learning have focused almost exclusively on cortical structures at the expense of um, brainstem auditory areas that serve more primary acoustic processing. So, I'm just... Why has that been the case? So it, it seems pretty logical that auditory learning would be impacted by differential abilities at sort of the input level or closer to the input level um, of the pathway, especially considering you know it's top-down connectivity. So what's the corticocentric argument here? Um, it can't just be that cortex is easier to image. Is that really it? It, it turns out that is really it. Um, and that's because um, uh, when we think about cognitive neuroscience and, and the, the biases, um, they have to be driven by methodology ultimately because um, you know the methods that the methods that we have to image the brains ultimately determine our, our questions. So so it, that's that's the problem and, and the methods that we have, um, a functional magnetic resonance imaging, which has been the most popular method in cognitive neuroscience, um, it doesn't have the level of detail that can that that can effectively image really small structures in in the brainstem. So, I think that's a big contributing factor. Um, I mean, it, for the most part, um, biologists would, would readily agree that these these structures, uh, the, the so-called peripheral structures, are are critical, and that not only do they send information to the brain, but they're also actively modulated. Um, by top-down information. It's funny that you call the peripheral structures, because I always imagine them sort of being out, and they're actually central. They're really states where it sort of all originates. I think the, the definition of what central is changing now, it used to be, you know, the exclusively the, the cortex, but now um, central auditory processing disorder, for example, um, I think people would acknowledge that it's not just exclusively cortically based. So you you're... In, in your work, you're spending a lot of time optimizing these imaging techniques to sort of uh, to image at a, at a scale and in areas that are not typical of cognitive neuroscientists, I guess, from, from what I've understood of the field so, so far. Um, is that, first of all, right? And second of all, um, uh, that's um, it's, it's more complicated than that. I think um, subcortical imaging, uh, especially the uh, imaging the hippocampus, uh, people have now started started to use uh, quite a bit of uh, high-resolution imaging. Um, so, so it's not all subcortical structures, but uh, especially the auditory system that, that's been um, ignored. And, and like I mentioned, it's really, really hard to, to image these auditory structures, partially because um, you know, they, they're physiologically very noisy, just like any other subcortical system. But also that um, functional magnetic resonance imaging also means there's going to be a lot of scanner noise that um, disrupts um, auditory processing. So, so you can't tell the, the, the signal from the noise. So wait, can I ask a question yeah. about the resolution of 
of, of these blood flow measures because it seems to me at some point you run into into that and the and a pattern of vascularization. So if the pattern of vascularization is sort of a rectangular grid or something, that works out really well for you. But if the pattern of vascularization is running right through physiologically different structures, then it could be that. No, absolutely. You, you, you're entirely right. And uh, that's, again, a, a difficulty with imaging sub- subcortical structures. And I can give you the example, the inferior colliculus, which we image um, right in the middle of the inferior, inferior colliculus, the central nucleus, where we think uh, uh, mid, mid, uh, mid-range frequencies are represented. There's just no activity. And so we, we do think that it's because of different patterns of uh, vascularization. And that's also, um, you know, it, it, while we're on that issue, I, there's only that much you can bring down the resolution. It's not going to get to what we really want. I mean, it's still going to be too coarse. So is there something on the horizon to to replace uh, functional MRI for that kind of work? Unfortunately, no. I think uh, we'll, we would have to get invasive at that point. Yeah, um, there, there have been. Um, if I'm, uh, I think I'm. Um, I think this was a paper in two thousand five where uh, the single cell recordings from humans, looking at uh, an abstract memory. And these are individuals who who were um, uh, undergoing surgery, and so they, they could actually open up the brain and, and test this. Um, but I think that 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 resolution can never be achieved with with non-invasive methods. Too bad. <laughs> Have you guys come across that study? No. So they they basically uh, had people. You know, they, uh, these are these are people undergoing surgery for epilepsy, and recorded. Um, uh, neurons from their um, hippocampus. I don't know which particular part. As they were viewing, um, uh, viewing images of famous, uh, you know, faces. So basically, they, this neuron responded every time there was um, Jennifer Aniston's picture. Yeah. Okay. This is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it responded not so vigorously when Jennifer Aniston was with Brad Pitt, but still responded. <laughs> And then none at all when somebody else was there. So, and it even responds when just uh, her, the letters are flashed. Jennifer Aniston's just flashed. And no kidding. <laughs> so presumably, Angelina Jolie had her own neuron. They just didn't see yes. that. <laughs> yeah, probably lots, likely lots of individual differences in these uh, in these representations. Depending on what tabloid you read. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So, that stopped the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we said we could go anywhere. Um, so you've, uh, I don't know if this is published or not, but you demonstrated a tonotopic, uh, tonotopic map in the inferior colliculus using um, these new high-resolution methods that you're refining. I guess, is that out yet? Do you want to talk it's, about that at all? Yeah, so we, we're still working on it and, and finalizing and running a few more um, participants. Um, but we're, we're very close, and this is work with collaborate with um, David Ress, who, who does um, high resolution imaging. Uh, that's 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 what he does, um, and he's been uh, he's been doing this work on a no- number of other structures, the hippocampus. Um, this is work with Alison Preston from UT Austin. Um, he's he's has his own work on the superior colliculus, and, and now, and I, I think he would be the first to admit that. It's been really hard to do the inferior colliculus relatively. 
So it seems like a very clever trick that you use to use the temporal delay and the bold signal to your advantage to... Why don't you say something yeah, about that? Because so I thought that was yeah. such a cool thing. It was. It's not my method by any stretch of imagination. It's, it was something that was developed by Hall in 1999, um, and it's been used in plenty of earth studies since. And uh, it's um, it's advantageous because you present sound in silence. That's how you know we we conduct these lab experiments, and it's always done in, in silence. And then you throw people in the scanner, and they listen to sound and noise. So this this definitely is advantageous that way because um, we can um, we can limit our um, uh, the responses to just the, the signal instead of instead of noise, but it's hugely disadvantageous because uh, we uh, don't have the we it drastically reduces the sample size. So so basically we instead of going we're scanning you know really slowly. Um, and and so that that's a problem because that means that the subject instead of doing a ten minute experiment ends up being there for forty five minutes. So the idea is that you stop the scan, you give a little period of silence. During that time, the response to the scan noise is decay, mm-hmm. and when you, that's decayed enough, you give the stimulus that's you really want to give, and then the duration of that stimulus is kind of adjusted so the bold signal is reaching a peak right at the end of that, right? And then you turn on the scan. And collect the collect the harvest the data from that sound, and then you do that thing again. So the scan normally would go continuously or as fast as it could go, but you're making these nine second gaps when you're not scanning. Right, right. which means we lose out on collecting that continuous sample. And uh, the other disadvantage is that uh, we don't have an aspect of time. So sometimes what differentiates um, Two sounds or two objects um, is is the is the temporal pattern itself of the of the blood oxygen level dependent response. So um, and this also varies by structures. So in the in the midbrain, um, this peak of the hemodynamic curve is much earlier, and so that's another difficulty that we had is because again these sparse sampling methods, which you so beautifully described. Um, has been optimized for cortical hemodynamic response curves. Why is that? Why is the fa- why is it faster in the midbrain? Is it just the arrangement of the vasculature, or what would it? It would would ultimately have to do with the arrangement of the vasculature. Right? It's the, it has to do with the time. Whatever it is, it's controlling blood flow, right? It has its own intrinsic dynamics. Yeah, and that's presumably oh. some cellular process. Mm-hmm. What do we know about it? Yeah. Do we not? What cells are responsible for that process, and what's? It's it's a field of active study, and I don't know much about it. But um, um, I was at the Human Brain Mapping Conference recently, and something they're looking at is um, glial contributions to um, the the bowl response. And so more and more, we are finding out that it's uh, it's not just the neurons, but um, the bold of uh, the fMRI signal seems to stem from uh, the glial cells too. Significantly, right? There's something like ninety percent of it. Or there, there's there's a an amount of blood that actually gets taken up, and of that amount, there's waste, you know, just is as excess blood. But of the amount that actually gets used, most of it is used by the glial cells. Yes, isn't it? and, and that's kind of scary because you know this is completely. Uh, 
uh, a fundamental assumption is that this relates to neural activity.
changes the response latencies in a different way than stimulating the, the rostral dimension. And I, I don't know how that, that pans out, but there seems to be um, differences between the rostral and caudal dimension, not related to a sound dimension, but how it actually communicates that information to, to the cortex. So something that you said earlier, let me, let me just backtrack a bit. Uh, something you said earlier about the fact that um, in the, the human brain, we know little about the, the midbrain structures because they, you just can't see them. Um, but the auditory system is poorly understood even in the animal brain, right? And even at the cortical level, I mean, there's we, we understand very little about the, top, the, the tonotopic representation in Heschel's gyrus even. And it, because it's a very complex structure, it doesn't seem to be as nicely laid out as the visual cortex or something like that. So I was wondering in regards to the, the, the dimensions, multiple dimensions, the visual cortex has a topographic representation, the retinotopic representation, but it has, seems to be in one dimension, isn't it? Or is there are there more dimensions similar to the inferior cortex? I'm just trying to make a parallel to other structures in the brain. Just going back to, to your question, I, um, mm-hmm. the complexity in the auditory cortex relative to the visual cortex, I think that's an excellent point. The auditory cortex response properties are way more complex and way more abstract than the visual cortex. And, and there are a couple of um, uh, suggestions that the inferior colliculus should be the uh, auditory analog of, of the visual V1, just in terms of response properties and how it's neatly mapped out. Um, and, and that the auditory cortex actually is, is, is more uh, higher level structure uh, in that sense, at least in terms of response properties are, are concerned. So you're, you're right. And, and that's partly the difficulty. I don't, uh, we have very uh, little idea about, or much less idea about the auditory cortex relative to the visual cortex. And uh, apart from methodology, it's partly to do with the fact that response properties in the auditory cortex are extremely complex. Because you have even at the, at the midbrain level, I mean, you have information feeding back down to the cochlea, so, which you don't have in the eyes. Yeah. And Absolutely. so you already have a complexity of signal there at that level that is that doesn't you don't see in the other ones. So I think you, you do have the eye. You do have things into the eyes. Feedback down to the eyes. You change. It. Well, I guess you, you change the, the yeah. cones and rods. Right Not now. the cones, that the receptors. Yeah. The, down, there's retinal, uh, there's retinal ganglion cells and stuff that are have. Feedback, not all the way. I don't know whether it's, I don't know enough to know whether it's different. The, the, but there the, is. The difference is in the complexity and the extent. Yeah. So I would, I would, I would like to argue that in response to that paper you mentioned, uh, the uh, Joseph Pavizi, Pavizi, that is so, so, cortical centric, the yeah. cortical centric view of, of the brain. He was that, criticizing people for being cortical for be, being cortical centric, which I agree is is, uh, is something that happens a lot in cognitive neuroscience. Um, because of the deficit, you know, the inability to see the rest of the brain. But um, uh, I would argue that it's a vision-centric right. problem in neuroscience, <laughs> more generally. That's the first sense that was studied, and is, it's understood fairly well. It has this very clean, well, up until a certain le- uh, level in, in, the, in, the, in the brain, it has a pretty nice layout. And so we have this expectation that the auditory system should function somehow in the same way, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent point. Uh, that the, the paper itself that we, we were talking about, the, the myopic view of, uh, of the corticocentric uh, view, which is, which is argued to be myopic, um, it, was, it was a very general paper. 
not focused on um, on systems per se, but across the board, including language studies and um, studies in, in other domains. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that, that's scary just from reading the paper is that uh, uh, oftentimes subcortical activations are just not reported. So half the studies seem to not report activation. The other half, you know, not the other half, but a good majority tend to ignore the activations that happen. Mm-hmm. This is something we discussed earlier, the cerebellum, for example. Right. Well, usually you just cut off from imaging, right? Because you have to sample. Yeah. You have this issue of the, the amount of the brain. The, right. it, you lose signal-to-noise ratio yeah. based on the amount of the brain that you, you uh, image. So if you're interested in a cortical structure, you just lop off the cerebellum. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's also a field of view issue. So, um, mm-hmm. But often we want to capture every bit of the cerebral cortex and... and Sometimes that, that means that we can't capture the subcortical structures. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not just the inferior colliculus or the auditory system, but in general, uh, the cerebellum, for example, we know nothing about. And I can tell you very frankly, in all my fMRI studies, the, one of the sites that shows the maximum activations, and I'm not even talking about a general sound versus silence, I'm talking about very, very specialized uh, you know, uh, uh, examination of, uh, for example, uh, lexical activation, so word greater than pseudo words. Um, the cerebellum seems to be the most interested. <laughs> we don't really know the the exact reason. So um, I, I I agree. I think the the, the myopic view about uh, and the corticocentric view is probably driven by the fact that uh, you know, we know most about the the visual system, and other systems are less easy to or more abstract. I guess also what I mean is that in the visual in the visual system things start getting interesting at the cortical level, whereas in the auditory system things are interesting much lower down. Oh, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was my cortical centric view yes. again for a little bit. <laughs> There's some interesting stuff happening in the retina. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. I had no idea because I started in the cortex and we thought the retina was just this like receptor sheet. And there wasn't actually any processing going on, but it turns out there's, you know, a lot of speed processing, direction processing, everything's happening there. But I wanted to get back to this vision-centric thing again, because uh, some of your recent work has picked apart the um, anatomical correlates of this dual-stream model of auditory processing, which sounds a heck of a lot like, you know, the, the dual-stream in the, in the visual system, which is based on... You know, uh, conceptual information, the what and the where, or what the what and the how, I guess, and the, the I guess, the semantic versus the articulatory, I don't know if I'm using these words correctly, yeah. for the language part of it, for the speech part of it. So, um, so you, first of all, can you, I, I don't know a lot about that, so can you, can you flush some, some of that out for our listeners, just basically, and then also can you talk about your results that show, even within the ventral stream, I guess, which is more controversial because there's less of an understanding of it anatomically, um, that you found these dual streams for comprehension-based stuff. For, for uh, and, and what what's the significance of that? Can you talk about that? So the, this is an idea that doesn't neatly neatly tran- uh, translate from from vision. Um, this this idea of dorsal and ventral streams dedicated to uh, to what and where processing, which is so neatly laid out uh, if you look at vision. Um, with respect to to auditory processing, it gets a little more complicated. Um, and there are multiple models, um, but I think everybody is fairly convinced that um, the more anterior to more, so the, the, the ventral re, um, pathway relates to um, what is being said. So, for example, if you, if you think about it in terms of speech, um, a speaker 
has produces content as in he 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 or she produces something meaningful so that would be the what question um a speaker also produces it from a certain spatial location so that would be the where is the speaker talking from but there's also uh, things related to to the speaker himself or herself like the characteristics uh, of the speaker right who's the speaker are, are they being emotional um is this a male female is this an older person is it a younger person we can all discern this so simultaneously our brain is decoding all this information and it's not like any of this information is lost you may be very actively listening to somebody speak um specifically focused on the what the content but you still don't lose track of the fact that you know this this maybe this is a a person who this is a speaker who has a certain attributes um that that are you know speaker specific so you do keep tra- track of that so um this information is encoded somehow so then the question is what are the the pathways so the the um the what pathways as i mentioned is less controversy about that so it, as as you move from more posterior regions to more anterior regions uh in the temporal lobe um there seems to be more um abstract responses so so um it's not the encoding of the speech signal itself but more um act, act, activation usually responds to uh, what a person is saying but the the dorsal stream um in in the in the visual envision that's the that's the where pathway that doesn't neatly translate um because the dorsal stream seems to be activated um not only based on spatial location but also aspects of um how um something is how a speech sound is being produced so the uh, the artic- articulatory dynamics of uh, of production um the complexity of that seems to activate the dorsal regions so it's it's an idea that that is is an ongoing debate and uh, it's it's still very unclear um we do have the 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 what's the what stream and the where stream or the how stream seems to be um process in the same areas we still need much more work on that area isn't that a, isn't that a how stream i don't know what how stream is <laughs> in terms of audition certainly for speech I mean, if you if you think of the dor- more dorsal stream is you know envision is vision for action. One of the th- one of the key things that we have to do for speech uh, depends on what you think of how much we have to use motor constraints in terms of speech things, but it seems like a lot mm-hmm. uh, is try to figure out what's happening with the the articulatory things of the speaker. and that has to be related to what's happening with articulatory streams of ourselves so it's it's a lot having to do with sound for action uh translated to another person it is a controversial uh question it, do we need that it doesn't mean i can't have an opinion and just spout off something it, so i don't no. know about but you spent <laughs> some time studying this so let's let's talk about your, your what, what my views are yeah um so this is the paper the this is the um, yes Okay. So, so th- that that paper had um, dealt with this, you know, the issue of um, uh, how our brain integrates information uh, about the talker and what the person is saying. Right. So, um, as we, so what is the person saying versus uh, uh, who is the person? And um, uh, what we found was um, was that uh, uh, one portion of of the um, of the temporal lobe, the middle temporal lobe. in the left side 
um, preferentially processed uh, words relative to pseudo words. But it, it was also very, very responsive to who was talking. So when we changed the talker, that changed the activity pattern in this region. So previous models have suggested that uh, this region in the, the, the left middle temple region that's part of the um, ward pathway is only sensitive to ward-related information. The idea there is that um, every other information is abstracted out and what's retained is critical to the content of the message. But what we showed was that um, um, the speaker information still matters. And why this is relevant, I, I think um, the fact that we integrate the speaker and the uh, what the person is saying, so what and uh, who, is critical in, in challenging listening environments, like when you're speaking, when you're listening to speech produced in, in you know, when you're listening to speech in a restaurant, it's always good to know who the talker is. It just makes life much, much easier. So there's advantages to, to, to keep track of this in an integrated manner. So that's, that was the argument of that paper, that we, we have been, we've bought too much into the abstractionist aspects and our brain can't store this information together. So it occurs to me that uh, people who study auditory system have one advantage over people who study visual system. So in the visual system, folks have given very abstract visual stimuli, and then they want to give natural stimuli to see if they can predict the response to natural stimuli. And then the question comes up, what's the right natural stimulus to give? But for you know, an auditory, folks have been famous for giving super simplified sounds and one-dimensionally changing sounds and so on. But when you go to give a natural auditory stimulus, it's obvious what it ought to be. It's speech. And so all of the kind of natural processing stuff gets focused, at least in humans, into the most important sounds we ever hear, which are each other's voices. And, and, uh, and the structure of language is relatively constrained. You can't you don't imagine a general purpose audio auditory analyzer for language. You imagine some kind of special purpose device. And I think it must be really helpful, really direct you. Sounds like it you know, it gives you a enormous focus on what's the right stimulus to study and and you use the differences between languages as a way of parameterizing the the stimuli you give to. Right. Um, poor people who study animals can't do that. They have so they give animal speech. They, they use speech as a, as a complex kind of thing. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a debatable question in terms of your of your cortex. And the question is, how different in what level of auditory cortex? How different is humans versus animal processing? If you're interested in auditory cortical processing, you know, language is pretty recent. Uh, and also other, other critters have uh, vocalizations, so they can use those vocalizations to study auditory processes, even if they're not language and not uh, learned. So it's a kind of, I think there's a whole range of things uh, that, uh, that people use. And you can also use the argument that uh, it's a question of whether you think that speech was optimized for the cortex or the cortex was optimized for speech. Um, I think it was the first <laughs> But I, I, what I, I find really interesting about um, some of your work is just how you're showing that these 
sounds that the brain processes. The brain is processing at certain kinds of sounds, like the left and right difference between temporal dynamics and spectral dynamics, and, and that it's essentially breaking the signal down. And yeah, the, ultimately, to us, the meaningful signal is language, but you, take, you show that you have the same response to musical stimuli or to other stimuli outside of the domain of language. So there's something fundamental about what the brain is extracting um, from, the, from the signal, whether it's a speech signal or some other kind of signal. So how much um, transfer have you seen, for example, in your studies showing that musicians are better than learning uh, certain linguistic uh, features that are related to, um, to musical stimuli? It's a great question, and uh, I haven't yet come across a study or done a study myself that shows that musicians are inferior relative to non-musicians in any kind of way, which, <laughs> which I, you know, it's uh, so which means that they they have a lot going on. Um, we've found a number of studies that have sh- uh, shown, including our our own, that show. Musicians are uh, find it easier to le- learn um, a tone language, which is makes sense because uh, in tone languages, uh, pitch is an important factor and uh, pitch is very relevant information in music. So years of training, um, you know, on pitch can transfer over to another domain, but it doesn't seem to be restricted to pitch either. Uh, musicians seem to learn any language just better, um, and. And there, there are enough studies to show that there's also general cognitive um, improvement while listening to or um, with long-term use of music. So um, better performance at stroop tasks, better inhibition, um, all the things that are associated with, uh, with a stronger working memory, which they do have stronger working memory. So what about the argument in the other direction, like the, the Diana Deutsch um, argument that, that the language makes you better at learning music. So if you speak a tone language, then you're better then you're a better musician. Or you're more likely to be a good musician. I find that really hard to buy. Just knowing what I know of the differences between music and and, uh, and speech in general. Um, for example, um, in music changes in pitch patterns are very discrete. So you don't go from you know this this really fast rapid change from low to high. Which you which you do in in tone languages all the time, um, and th- there's there's some evidence for it. So the evidence she uses is that tone language uh, speakers tend to have more um, um, incidence of absolute pitch. Right? So so, um, but I I don't even think absolute pitch is is a skill that's required for uh, a contour tone language where. So, uh, in, in a person with an absolute pitch can can tell what what the pitch is just by listening to it without a context, um, and I can argue that it doesn't help in in learning a tone language in any way. In fact, if if some of what uh, we've shown is true, that might actually be disadvantages. So if you if you tend to focus on on pitch height, um, then you lose information related to pitch direction, which is critical to. To a, to a tone language. So I don't buy that, that viewpoint. So what about a different version of that where you, you have a more general uh, correlational problem and suppose that musicians are the people that are uh, good at focusing on auditory uh, tasks and so they're good also at learning languages. Uh, and so the people that turn out to be musicians 
uh, turn out to be the ones that would have been good at learning languages anyway. And it wasn't the fact that they're listening. Yeah. It's just that they have a natural propensity to pay attention to auditory stimuli and not just like space out. And then it wouldn't be, if that's the case, then it wouldn't be that surprising that it's not just pitch, it's all sorts of different stuff. Um, I, I do think you're right. And, uh, but I can't, I can't argue otherwise because they're, they're, out of all the um, music is better neuroscience studies, um, I, I can pick a handful of them that use the randomized control longitudinal design, which is what is needed. So what we need to do is randomly pick school kids um, and, and divide them into two groups, give them music training for six months or a year, and give the other group something equivalent, which is not related to, to music, and then follow up um, you know, with uh, pre-training pre and post-training scans. Um, and at that point, if you still see what we see, um, that, that would mean music is what's responsible for, uh, for, those, for those changes. You need to get to the baby Einstein uh, mailing list of who's got that and who doesn't and control and other kinds of things, and then you can do the studies earlier. So just who like played all this music during the womb, thinking that you're going to be a genius, and who didn't? And then uh, yeah, so the problem with that is they take all this beautiful, this beautiful symphonic music, and they digitize it into these little pings, which you know, <laughs> that works quite the same way. I hope it doesn't work. I mean, that's scary that uh, our brains change by something like that <laughs> on a constant basis. Yeah, and this is something that we we actually. Um, planning to do in collaboration with uh, with the music department at, at UT to actually go to schools um, and there's other confound right so socioeconomic status is a huge confound um, all the studies done so far on musicians non-musicians tend to pick uh, musicians who who learn um, music through, through private lessons and that's not something everybody can can afford so that's also an interesting question it's just any kind of lessons in school, um, nothing sophisticated. Is that just equivalent to really focus one hour, you know, per or three hours per week, kind of private lessons? So let me get this right. Your plan is to go into schools, pick half the students, and offer them some kind of improved educational experience, and not the other half. And then stick them in a and scanner for two hours while their moms <laughs> are waiting in a waiting room. <laughs> We, we would use uh, ERPs, so so yeah. no scanning. Um, we could we this is this this is what you know would make an interesting experiment is to give the other half a percussion instrument. Because something I'm interested in is is pitch, and um, so that would be a neat comparison uh -huh. to have one group of uh, in one group of string instrument players and one group of percussionists. I see. And then the parents are told, all children are getting musical yeah. training. We'll sign Your for child that. is just Come selected on, for yeah. percussion. That <laughs> also gives us an idea of um, a general improvement in, in cognitive abilities versus something that's specifically tuned to, to processing sound. Excellent. Okay, well, this has been fun. Thank you for being with us, Parag, uh, Chandler Shekharin. This has been Neuroscientist Talk About. Yeah.